0: the Media Law Podcast Newscast. I'm Colette Allen and I'm with Tom and Paul today to go through the latest media law headlines. We will be discussing some of the announcements made in the Queen's speech last week that involved freedom of expression, Riley and Mully's meaning hearing, the Facebook Oversight Board's decision to ban former US President Donald Trump. We also will briefly cover a NHS COVID vaccine data leak. Uh, just to start quickly with the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill which, just to update listeners, will be going ahead following a brief review after various Kill the Bill protests erupted in March and April of this year. This is the bill that extends discretionary power to the police in response to protests and essentially lowers the threshold for intervention. We covered this extensively in a newscast on the 22nd of March. And so please do go back and listen to that if you would like Professor David Mead's opinions on the bill. Uh, In the meantime, Tom Paul, do you have any updates that you want to make now that this has been announced in the Queen's speech?
1: I don't think that we've moved a great deal from the position we were at. Um, I think it's clear that the bill is likely to face substantial opposition in terms of public protests, uh, which it has done, of course, already. Um, It may well face significant opposition in the House of Lords. um, And given that it was not um, a key plank of the... I don't think it was even in the Conservative Party Manifesto in 2019. Um, The Lords is under no constitutional convention to uh, allow it passage. So it might well get kicked around in the Lords, I should think, uh, given how controversial it is. But we've seen this um, government is generally disinclined to, um, to bow to pressure even from people on its own benches to uh, amend legislation um, that's brought before the House of Commons. So we'll have to see uh, how that turns out. It's still as bad as we thought it was a few weeks ago.
0: Mm. And, And somewhat ironically, in the very same speech, you then have the announcement for the higher education freedom of speech bill, which places new legal duties on students, unions and universities in England and Wales to ensure free speech on campus. And so it's a misunderstanding of free speech in both of these coming out in in parallel. So the Freedom of Speech Bill aims to promote free speech by offering speakers who've been no platformed an opportunity to claim compensation. We've also covered this in previous newscasts. um, And and what we mostly touched on was the fact that the bill fails to recognise that universities are already bound by a legal duty to support and actively encourage freedom of expression on campus which includes the right to protest. Uh, So in other words, freedom of expression is that universities are legally responsible for includes students' rights not to attend certain talks. And there's been a lot of discussion in the past week with the announcement of this bill going forward in the Queen's Speech by free speech critics about the potential chilling effect that this may have on universities. Do either of you have a, a comment that you want to make on this?
1: Well, this is profoundly troubling for freedom of expression. But what's what's troubling here, I mean, quite apart from the specific proposals, um, is is as as you rightly say, this very confused set of sounds coming out of government at the moment, um, and it is pure naked populism. The government is saying no to protest when it's in uh in 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 public spaces and involves actually challenging things uh in a potentially disruptive way so for example the way that extinction rebellion protesters have have gone around causing disruption um uh, or 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 those who uh, uh who who dumped edward Coulson's statue in uh, uh over the harbor uh, in bristol um th- these kinds of obviously Political protest that are by nature necessarily disruptive um, uh, could be met with very severe criminal sanctions. Now, we're talking years in prison if the Home Secretary decides um, that that, that these amount to um, uh, 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 public nuisance. Um, Whilst at the same time saying, What we need to do is ensure that. Controversial speakers and universities, by which the government undoubtedly largely has in mind uh, speakers uh, from the political right, um, uh, to stop them being so-called no-platformed. I can't see it working um, because uh, it's perfectly possible for uh, students simply to boycott attendance at these uh, at any talk that is arranged. For a speaker they dislike and instead of pressuring the students union to withdraw the invitation or the university to withdraw the invitation or whoever it was who were offered the invitation to withdraw it, you can simply not attend Um, and then the individual concerned will still technically have their platform and just be nobody listening. Um, So I don't imagine this is going to make a great deal of difference, but it is worrying that the government's priority here is not to protect the right to political protest in public um but instead to find ways to put money in the form of quote unquote compensation into the hands of certain individuals who feel aggrieved at having invitations to speak at universities withdrawn i'm sure paul has something to say on this
2: paul has many things to say about this let me make that clear uh, you've touched on several of them already i mean the 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 gross uh, incoherency uh here frankly is is shocking and if it was anyone other than the conservative present conservative government i'd be surprised but given that it's the present conservative government i mean this is just true to form isn't it it's it's i mean if it wasn't so serious it would be laughable um the very idea that on the one hand they are you know deeply concerned about safety online whilst on the other hand they want our uh, undergraduates to be exposed to the kind of hateful speech uh, that uh, students are rightly entitled to say they don't want to hear, I mean, it's just ludicrous. And then the idea that universities somehow should pay, at a time when universities, let's be honest, are strapped for cash and they're struggling to find money to support their own researchers, their own academic staff, The idea that universities should be paying out to individuals who, frankly, in most cases are hopeless human beings, let alone terrible researchers. The idea that these people should be getting money from universities instead of the very researchers who actually do have the qualifications and the ability to make a difference in the world is appalling. And it says something uh, deeply concerning about the state of Britain.
0: You touched on the online safety bill, which is the final thing I want to discuss from the Queen's speech. This bill will go ahead and require tech giants to tackle harmful and illegal content online. The draft legislation imposes a duty of care on digital services to moderate user-generated content in a way that prevents users from being exposed to illegal or harmful stuff online there is a debate around whether these proposals will harm freedom of expression by encouraging platforms to over-censor. And this is probably a wider discussion to be had when we actually have a, a bill to look at. But I wonder whether there's any preliminary thoughts on this censorship issue at this point.
2: Yeah, the, a few um, a few concerns. I mean, one is just the, the vagueness of all of this. I mean, you know, something, something that is ostensibly... Um, uh, sound uh, and uncontestable not even sure that's a word but uncontestable something like uh, the prohibition on terrorism content absolutely fine You know, do, no one's going to look at that and say well, that's that's a bit off uh, but then uh, once you sort of dig down into it well how's terrorism content going to be defined? By what standard do we apply it there? Is, it, is this going to be some algorithm, some buffins in the back room at Facebook what's it going to capture? But the thing that concerns me uh, uh, most, I think, is, is again, the incoherency of this, um, the, uh, the very idea that um, it, harmful speech online and harmful speech is, of course, something else that needs a uh, clear definition. Um, but the idea that harmful speech online uh, is to be prohibited and cut out of um, uh, democratic discourse is, of course, laudable. Uh, in an important sense, but then we we look at the exemptions and we find that newspapers are exempted from this. Well in one sense fine, okay. I mean it could be argued that one of the greatest sources of sources of discontent in this country is the right wing press. Um, but fine uh, they they're allowed to carry on spewing out uh, hate. Um, but also covered with this within this exemption seems to be uh, below-the-line comments, so the ability of readers of um, newspapers to uh, comment on stories uh, online. Well, um, this of itself is the source of some of the most uh, appalling and harmful and disgusting speech that you're likely to come across. And yet, for some reason, this gets um, a pass. Uh, it's allowed to continue. So why do we treat... Uh, The online speech that we find somewhere like Facebook differently to the online speech that we find somewhere like uh, the Sun or the Daily Mail just doesn't make any sense.
1: Again, it's a question of apparently ill-thought-out tensions or unresolved tensions in the proposed legislation. Um, There is clearly uh, an overt determination on the part of government to protect the free speech of opinions and political opinions. And at the same time, they want to prevent harmful content. So where do they stand on the anti-vaxxers? Or where is Facebook supposed to stand on the anti-vaxxers in order to comply with the law? Now, Facebook will have its own policies on anti-vaxxing. And I think anti-vaxxing is profoundly stupid. Um, uh, It is certainly harmful, but it is also these days political because certain people on, you know, not not the sort of traditionally conservative right, but the kind of wacko conspiracy right, have made it a political matter. Um, so where does that actually uh, fit into this? Um, there seem to be exemptions also for... Uh, political groups that use distressing content potentially harmful content as part of political campaigns so for example you might well find animal rights groups putting in pretty nasty imagery of the uh, conditions in which animals are kept or experimented on for example that might be thought if they were put up by your average layperson to, uh, to, to violate these standards, but because they're part of a political campaign that's going to be protected. You'd see the same with um, anti-abortion groups. And we've seen examples of that happening in the United States and uh, also in Northern Ireland. Um, so you can see that, that is also, there's, there's this line between um, material that is harmful, material that's political, and there is plenty of material that is both. This piece of legislation, so far as I can see, Uh, Is not going to try to engage with that tension, um, and is just going to have it on its face. Um, But you know, uh, Paul Paul's said what he said about this government, and I I agree with you. The government either you know can only be said either to not be aware of that tension, which I I think would be laughable, um, or to be deliberately ignoring it, Uh, and I, I think that is far more likely because it has no real interest in resolving this tension. Um, the government's political agenda is is one where these sorts of tensions are helpful yeah. to it.
2: And, and what it does as well, and if we link this back to the uh, universities um, bill as well, what it does is to sort of institutionalise particular forms of speech. So one way that the courts, for example, in the past have dealt with... Um, objectionable or what we might call objectionable political speech, uh, the sort of, uh, I'm thinking here of like anti-abortionist literature, for example. Uh, the courts have tended to say things like, well, if you have a, a so, so there's a case, Connolly and DPP, for those that are interested, um, where the court uh, upheld uh, uh, prosecution. I think it was under the Malicious Communications Act or something, something like that. Um and the court upheld uh the the prosecution on on the on the grounds that this wasn't a serious interference with free speech. Why wasn't it not a serious interference? well, because this was a lone protester uh who was targeting um specific pharmacists uh she wasn't part of a sort of organized campaign she didn't have a sort of political affiliation this type of thing. It sort of buys into this idea that actually when it comes to things like free speech, uh, there uh, there are certain institutions which represent free speech, like newspapers, like universities, uh, and uh, other platforms like social media do not. And of course, that goes against the whole point of what I understood social media to be about, which was this great liberalising measure, which would allow everybody to be effectively their own publisher, their own news outlet. And we're sort of slowly creeping back from that. Um, and, and the reason why this ties back to the university's bill is, is effectively the government is saying that actually there is something valuable about being able to speak at a university, something that needs to be protected because speaking at a university is more important, uh, more significant than simply having one's own platform on, on social media uh, and being denied access to the university I mean, as a free speech lawyer, I would say being denied access to a university has no impact on free speech because you can go online and you can gather your awful followers around you. You can meet like-minded people. Um, so your your threat to free speech there is non-existent. But the government seems to think, contrary to that, that actually there's something important about being able to access an institution of free speech uh, that ranks higher uh, in these imaginary rankings, than, than social media alone.
0: So I, I want to question on you on that last point, then a little bit in especially in light of Facebook's recent decision to ban Trump and the oversight board and the and the constitution mm. of that that's kind of come out to light in the in the past couple of weeks. So you say that if your free speech can be, you you have more access to free speech almost by going online and promoting yourself mm. that way. But at the same time, these are private companies which don't have an obligation to uphold someone's free speech. And what the Oversight Board has essentially done is set up its own um, quote-unquote independent self-regulationary form that can make decisions on facebook's behalf that are binding on facebook but at the same time facebook appointed all of the people to this board Mm. and so it it sets itself up as this supreme court-esque kind of model but it it isn't really an independent body in the way Mm. that the online safety um the online harms bill would be independent regulation and so uh so i just kind of want to want to unpack those two, your final point and the fact that there is no obligation on private companies to promote someone's free speech, how do those two things align?
2: Yeah, thank, thank you uh, for picking me up on that, um, Keller, because you're right, it does look uh, inconsistent. Um, but, but actually, actually, my point is, uh, it's a, the, the two points are linked together. The technology exists for you, the individual, to go out there and reach like-minded individuals. Um, but as with a sort of physical sp- space and an online space... Uh, you don't have a right to a specific outlet. Yep, so um, we can't, I can't claim that I have a right to disseminate my very important message to the world via a specific outlet. I can't say Facebook has to broadcast me anymore than I can say that the BBC has to broadcast me. Um, but I still have a freedom to. Um, Go into the marketplace, the online marketplace, the real world marketplace and identify venues uh, that do support the kind of speech that I want to make. I can either create the space myself uh, in physical form. I can go and um, buy a piece of land if necessary to broadcast my message from. I can buy a website. Um, but there's there's a difference there, I think, from from um, from the alternatives that the government has in mind and, and the one that you were alluding to, rightly alluding to. So I can't claim uh, to have a right to access Facebook any more than I can claim to have a right to access the BBC. Um, but what I can do is go out into the world uh, and meet like-minded people to support me to do that. So, so I suppose my point is, Uh, Whilst I have a right to free speech, I have no right to efficient free speech, to the best forms of communication. Uh, And so, you know, for Facebook, Facebook and Twitter for a long time uh, were perfectly happy to have someone like Donald Trump uh, involved as a user. They were perfectly happy with that because it boosted their numbers, presumably, and it was good marketing. Um, but it reached a point where actually they felt, I'm sure, that, that, that his presence was damaging. Well, they were entitled at that point to, to separate those ties. As long as they followed the, the contractual terms, but that's a different matter. As a point of free speech, they were entitled to disassociate from him just as much as they were entitled to associate with him in the first place.
0: Just to finish up that that point on Donald Trump, um, for listeners, this is uh, the decision will go back to Facebook now and be reviewed again in six months. So whether the ban is truly permanent, um, only time will tell. I'm going to move away from free speech at the moment and on to defamation as we have a meaning judgment in Riley and Murray. This was... Um, a statement that was made by Laura Murray about Rachel Riley, which was held to be defamatory at common law. And the case now goes on to determine serious harm. Uh, Tom, do you want to give a bit of background to the facts on this and um, where you think it stands on defences?
1: I want to preface um, what I'm going to say by uh, just clarifying that, that all I've got to go off is the way that this case is being reported in the mainstream press. Um, I I haven't been present at any of the hearings or or, or seen any of the uh, official transcripts. So there's always that caveat that these things don't always get reported with all the details that lawyers would find relevant. So the impression we get of the case is necessarily going to be an incomplete one at this point. It's important to say that in part because the uh, judgment in the case from the most recent hearing is still reserved. So Um, The judge uh, overseeing the case is still uh, considering the matter actively. Um, This case uh, arises out of uh, uh, some tweets uh, that were uh, put up in 2019. At the beginning of March 2019, um, Jeremy Corbyn, the then leader of the Labour Party, um, uh, visited a mosque in North London Uh, during that visit he had an egg thrown at him by a far-right protester who was subsequently uh, jailed briefly um, for that attack Um, Rachel Riley sent a tweet a little bit after that incident Um, and her tweet was a retweet with some extra content um, of an older tweet by uh, the political commentator Owen Jones. Now the original Owen Jones tweet had had a picture of the uh, former British National Party leader, far-right leader Nick Griffin, having an egg thrown at him And Jones had said uh, of uh, Nick Griffin, I think sound life advice is, if you don't want eggs thrown at you, don't be a Nazi. Um, Rachel Riley, in the aftermath of the Corbyn incident, retweeted this uh, Owen Jones tweet um, with the words, good advice, along with an emoji of a red rose and an egg. The red rose uh, is, of course, uh, reasonably well known to be the emblem of the Labour Party. Um, The tweet uh, that Riley is suing in respect of came after that from uh, one of Corbyn's aides, Laura Murray. Um, So she responded to Riley's tweet um, in the following terms. She wrote... Today, Jeremy Corbyn went to his local mosque for Visit My Mosque Day and was attacked by a Brexiteer. Rachel Riley tweets that Corbyn deserves to be violently attacked because he is a Nazi. This woman is as dangerous as she is stupid. Nobody should engage with her ever. Now, Riley has sued Murray for libel in respect of that uh, uh, tweet. Uh, The Uh, Judge, Mr Justice Nicklin, has held that at common law, this statement bore the meaning uh, uh, that uh, Riley had publicly stated in a tweet that Corbyn deserved to be violently attacked. Um, uh, uh, And I I think there's uh, obviously no impeaching that ruling at all. Um, uh, That does seem to be Uh, a clear meaning from the statement, and at common law, that would be defamatory. Um, Where this case will, uh, I think, be decided um, is either on the issue of serious harm. Uh, It might be ruled that this uh, uh, tweet does not give rise to uh, serious harm or a likelihood of serious harm. Um, uh, And if not there, that at defences, the defences stage. Um, and it's apparent that um, defendant here, Murray, is going to run a number of defences, including uh, the defense of honest opinion and um, the defense of uh, responsible publication on a matter of public interest. So section three and section four of the Defamation Act. And from the way that this case has been reported, which as I say, may well paint an incomplete picture, it looks to me at first glance to have all the elements for an honest opinion defence. We have a statement that may well be a value judgment. I think it's certainly arguable, strongly arguable, that it's a value judgment rather than an allegation of fact because uh, it is talking about Uh, The decision that Rachel Riley made to uh, retweet the Owen Jones tweet with the additional comments that she put on it and the emojis uh, in the particular context, um, which is the aftermath, not only the aftermath of the uh, egg being thrown at Corbyn, but also in and around the uh, anti-Semitism allegations that were dogging the Labour Party and, and Corbyn in particular around this time. So um, retweeting uh, a a tweet that talks about um, uh, not being a Nazi um, has obvious connotations there, I should think, to your average uh, Twitter user. So we have a value judgment that uh, Riley is as dangerous as she is stupid. This is uh, based on a set of factual circumstances that are set out in Murray's tweet, so she gives uh, a specific account of the factual background that has led her to this value judgment, and um, uh, she will argue that it is an opinion that could be honestly held, that it could be rationally drawn uh, as a conclusion from those facts. It might not necessarily be drawn by everyone, but it's an opinion that could be held. Um. So there is, uh, I should think, at the very least, a decent chance that we get um, a, a a judgment that gives us some more material to work with on uh, Section 3, which we've not had a lot of since the Defamation Act. We've barely had any cases that have given us uh, substantial judgments on defences. We've had a little bit on Section 4, um, which is the, the public interest defence. Um, this would be an opportunity for a, a, a judgment on section three. But as I say, the picture at this point is incomplete. Judgment is reserved and we will await uh, that judgment with interest.
0: I just wonder whether it is going to pass the serious harm threshold, though, because it strikes me as a lot of retweets and tweets and hyperbole that people will read on Twitter and understand to be just that just hyperbole and nothing more this is not a call to violence
2: i i agree i agree with that color i mean i i, I take tom's point and as a sort of uh, sort of uh, as an academic i'm i'm with tom it'd be interesting to get more cases uh, that explore the the limits of section three and section four but i don't see this as one that necessitates uh, that uh, really, I think if this does progress on to defences, I think it starts to make a mockery of uh, Le Chaux and, um, and what the meaning of section one is meant to be. I mean, I'd like to think that this wouldn't even pass the Thornton test, uh, which uh, Le Chaux said, and of course, Le Show says that section one is, a, is of a higher standard than, than Thornton. Um, But as Tom said, you know, that's on the basis of what we've been told in the uh, in the press coverage. And of course, we have to be very careful with press coverage because we know uh, that it might have been exaggerated and the the juicier bits um, uh, emphasised over over the other things. Um, But I think this does beg a question as well about the nature of reputation uh, in this context. If this is an attack on on Riley's reputation, well, then what reputation? Uh, or her reputation as what? Because if if it's an attack on anything, it's her reputation as a political commentator. Uh, which I think, uh, I mean, look, I, I, I would say that uh, Murray was perfectly entitled to attack uh, Riley as a political commentator because it seemed this seems to me like a case of tit for tat. Um, but. Um, uh, Rachel Riley is not a political commentator so far as I can tell uh, she is known principally as uh, the host or co-host of Countdown uh, and so for me this has sort of connotation this has echoes in a way of, of, um, of Birchill and Birkhoff which I still maintain is one of the worst def- defamation case decisions ever um, but, but w- yeah so that for me is the key question here what what is the reputational harm uh, how is that uh, drawn out how is that how does that manifest here
1: on the serious harm point i think it might well come down to interpretation of one word in the tweet which in itself is a problem if you are dissecting tweets with that kind of forensic analysis where it comes down to a single word then i think that's problematic in the case of stalker and stocker i mean
2: Gave oh, them, don't get me started on Stocker and Stocker. I know. Do not bring Stocker and Stocker here.
1: Well, the point about Stocker and Stocker is that the Supreme Court said that that kind of forensic analysis is not a good idea uh, when you're dealing with tweets. The kind of broad thrust of their decision is that, that Twitter users don't engage in that when they form meanings in their own uh, minds. Yes, the they audience. said that,
2: and then they engaged
1: in that level of well, analysis. Yes. But my point is that the, the, the key word here may well be deserves. Um, or uh, that Jeremy Corbyn deserves to be attacked. If um, if it is thought that um, Murray was accusing Riley of generally in- encouraging or inciting future attacks on a person, then incitement to violence, I think, probably is sufficiently inherently defamatory to cause serious harm under the approach adopted by uh, Mr Justice Warby, as he then was, and uh, later the Supreme Court in La Um, On the other hand, if the tweet is taken in the context, and I personally think it was intended in this context, though I realise intention is not um, a determining factor in uh, defamation cases, um, that it's referring to one specific incident as a kind of post- ex post facto justification that jeremy corbyn deserved this particular egg to be thrown at him which was not a terribly violent act if that is what it is thought that murray has accused uh riley of doing that is um uh, suggesting that this egging was justified then that seems to me to be accusing somebody of saying it's okay to throw an egg at a person, which is not a terribly serious matter and wouldn't cause serious harm. So I think whether it comes down to serious harm comes down to the way that the uh, court interprets this word deserves. Um, and since I don't particularly think that courts should be getting into that level of forensic analysis when it comes to tweets, I would you know uh, hope that we see an approach that takes as a default setting the less serious, uh, the less serious possible meaning.
2: Yeah, I think I think that's got to be right. I mean, as a, a from a sort of um, academic perspective, of course, I understand entirely what you're saying, Tom, and I think it's, it's uh, reasonable uh, in that sense. But there's. From a sort of realist perspective or a pragmatic perspective, there is an air of unreality about it. If we're to allow that level of um that level of of exchange, angry exchange on Twitter, to somehow necessitate the court's time, uh, I find that I find that problematic.
1: It's true because when we have political political exchanges or exchanges that. Uh, involve politics and politicians um, uh, taking place online, you do get a lot of heated language. You get tweets sent in the heat of the moment that are not perfectly drafted, uh, and which, of course, even if they are subsequently deleted, can often be found, because there's always somebody who's taken a screen grab of it, or it's been archived somewhere. There are various archiving services. Um so I, I agree i agree with paul and, and as i say with the broad thrust of what the supreme court was saying in stocker which is to acknowledge that there is that twitter might not be a transient medium but it is uh one that is used in haste both by tweeters and readers um uh, and 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 so uh
2: in layman's terms, it's a pinch of salt territory. That that broader context, I think, is important here. That we need to understand uh, as part of our um, part of our uh, principles for defamation, that there are certain places where uh, there is a sort of uh, sensible, rational, uh, clear-headed debate taking place, and then there are other places that are the opposite of that. And Twitter is one of those places. And I think that context is important here if we're to build up a sensible body of principle. I mean, it's one thing, I think, if, if, if this kind of attack was out of character uh, for the forum, but, but I mean, it's slap bang in the middle of the character, as far as I can tell. Um, Twitter is not uh, a particularly nice place.
0: And it'd be interesting to see how the online harms bill plays into these these decisions as we kind of navigate how speech is regulated on those platforms. So it will be another hurdle in it all. I'm going to move on just because there's one final thing that I want to discuss before we finish today's session, and that is the NHS COVID data leak. Um, this comes from the uh, vaccine booking website which allows users to make a vaccine appointment with basic identity information, such as uh, address and um, name, date of birth, etc. The user's vaccine status would then be disclosed in the process, which theoretically means anyone who possesses this basic personal information of a friend or a colleague or a stranger could find out whether they have been vaccinated or not, which of course is confidential medical information. Uh, So Big Brother Watch, the uh, privacy watchdog, has called this a seriously shocking failure to protect patients' medical confidentiality. And a spokesperson for the National Data Guardian for Health and Social Care has confirmed that this is indeed a weakness in the system, but stressed that they are working on a solution that will fulfil... The twin and important aims of protecting confidentiality whilst maintaining easy access to vaccinations for the public. I believe the bug has not actually been fixed on the day of recording, but it's something that they are looking into. Um and obviously if this is something that people will want to have recourse to down the line, then that will be an interesting one for us to keep an eye on. Yeah.
1: Um I, it is a It is a shocking failure of the system to maintain confidentiality. Uh, It is a matter that some people might well consider on the trivial side when it comes to uh, medical information. Uh, One's COVID vaccination status is probably not the most sensitive bit of medical information that could be um, put out about one into the public domain. Um, uh, But uh, nevertheless, Uh, it is medical information and it it can lead to certain other things being inferred about people because if for example you log on you see that a person who you know to be aged under 30 has had two doses of the vaccine then you can infer pretty easily from that that they have some underlying medical condition that has necessitated early vaccination. Um, uh, So uh, it is shocking it will uh, damage people's confidence in Uh, the NHS's ability to maintain the confidentiality of the patient records. Um, I I would be, frankly, staggered if there's... I'd be staggered if it hasn't been fixed already, were it not for um, what we all know about the way um, some of these computer systems have worked in the past. Uh, We know the NHS has had serious problems with its computer infrastructure for a very long time. Um, It just seems to be a constant stream of errors going back decades with the way that they organize things. Um, But, yeah, I I don't know exactly who is responsible for this because obviously the NHS's badge is on the vaccination rollout. But then the NHS's badge has been put onto the test and trace system, uh, which has had very little to actually do with the NHS. It's just been labeled as that so uh, ultimately who's responsible here I don't know, it doesn't really matter it needs to be fixed and then the information commissioner needs to have a very good look into what went wrong and prevent it from happening again
0: Alright well I think that brings us up to time, thank you very much for joining me Tom and Paul
1: Thanks Colette. Thanks Colette
0: And as ever please follow us on social media at Podcast, and we will be back with new, more newscasts again soon Thanks very much